you know, push it over the sand in to access this water because there's this great rocky structure and wanted to be able to cast back towards it. And like literally, we're in the middle of nowhere. We've driven a couple hours. I'm camping on the beach in middle of nowhere and in this boat. And then I look out and here comes this panga with six men in traditional Muslim dress wearing a ski mask. And it's like, man, it's like all of a sudden shit just got real and trying to get the engine started. Of course, it won't start. And the boat pulls up and it's like pure panic mode. And That was Oliver White sharing a crazy fishing story on the other side of the world. Did I mention that we were into season three? Whoops. This is episode number 69 of the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. We'll help you on your fly fishing journey with classic stories covering steelhead fishing, fly tying, and much more. How's it going, everyone? Thanks for stopping by the Fly Fishing Show. Today's episode is sponsored by the Wet Fly Swing Member Society, where you can support new, innovative fly fishing companies and get exclusive discounts on products and services. To check out the Member Society, head on over to wetflyswing.com members and see the list of companies and special bonuses there. In today's episode, I chat with Oliver White, one of the big names in destination fly fishing. We talk about how he built his lodge in the Bahamas from the ground up, his new nonprofit Indie Fly, and a new guide school he's uh, putting together. I think it should be out by now. Oliver breaks out some killer bonefish tips, tells us how you can DIY your next trip and what his next big thing is going to be. Don't miss this as Oliver shares a short story about how he gave up a high-level guiding position to move to New York to work on a hedge fund uh, as a hedge fund manager. And, uh, and it turned out it was one of the best things he ever did. So without further ado, here's Oliver White. How's it going, Oliver? No, I'm doing great. How are you today, Dave? Good, good. Uh, good to have you on. I appreciate you taking a little time to jump on this call. I know, uh, you're totally busy, lots of things going on. And, uh, so I appreciate you spending a little time here, um, to talk with us. No, absolutely, man. Kind of in between adventures. This is this is how I make up my home time. Good deal. Good deal. Well, we're going to dig into a little bit of the adventure stuff. I was hoping uh, maybe before we get into it, I know a little bit of your history, but maybe you can talk about how you first got into fly fishing and then take us to how you, you know, kind of came to be, you know, Oliver White now, kind of all over the, the magazines and everywhere. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny. I never really expected or planned to be doing what I do now. Um, but I was always you know, an outdoor oriented kid and, you know, whether it was sports or just general outdoor stuff. And, uh, you know, I found fly fishing as a teenager and it was really, uh, my junior year in college, I had a really bad skiing accident and I broke my back and my pelvis and my hip and uh, a whole lot of stuff. And I missed a whole year of school. And during that recovery process was really the moment that fly fishing became my thing. And a big part of that was, was almost therapy. I was stuck in my parents' house in bed and just miserable, you know, at 19 years old. And I would go out in the yard with my walker and I had a back brace on and I would kind of just cast my fly rod. And it was really, if anything, just a little bit meditational and just a way to escape, you know, really kind of tough time in my life. And as I healed up from that, uh, 
fly fishing really became the one pursuit that I focused on. And, and that led me to get in a job at a fly shop. And then I started guiding, uh, when I got back to school. So that summer between my junior and senior year, I guided, uh, my senior year in school, I put all my classes on Tuesday and Thursday. So I could go guide for a four day weekend in Western North Carolina, Eastern Tennessee and graduated college. And, you know, went down and got a job in Argentina, guided in Tierra del Fuego, came back from that, got a job in Jackson Hole and, uh, you know, started, you know, making a living, you know, guiding and, and they really was just what I did. And, uh, and I loved it. And it was also something that I never thought I was going to be able to do forever. I always thought that I was going to transition to a more corporate career hmm. and that, you know, that really was just, and inevitability in my mind, right? I mean, you couldn't make a living fishing and, yep. and, uh, you know, even though I loved it and I was doing, you know, a lot better financially than a lot of my friends who had gone to school with, uh, you know, but there, there was this idea that at 25, 26, I was guiding, you know, more than 250 days a year that you'd kind of peaked because, you know, there was really nowhere else to go. I, you know, had a winter time gig, which is hard to come by. I had a great summer gig living in Wyoming and, uh, you know, I was doing well, but, it wasn't going to get any better. And so I always, always thought that, that I was going to quit. And, um, you know, the short story, you know, has been told, mm-hmm. told many times, but I had a client that I met in Argentina offer me a job to come work for his hedge fund in New York. And, uh, so I was in Jackson hole for a summer and I read all these financial books and, uh, called Bill Ackman up in, in the fall and he brought me out to New York. And so I spent a couple of years working as an analyst for Pershing Square Capital Management there in New York, uh, which was really another incredible turning point in my life. Um, You know, one, it was an incredible contrast and juxtaposition to what I was doing to go from, you know, being a fishing guide living in Wyoming and Argentina to living in New York City, uh, you know, sitting at a desk. Uh, But it was also an incredible education. You know, I don't know that I could have gotten a better education anywhere on the planet of just kind of being thrown into the fire and, and learning, you know, high level finance and economics and accounting and, and, you know, all these incredible skills that, uh, I really didn't appreciate or value appropriately going into that. Um, but leaving that job, you know, I, I, what I've really been able to do is figure out how to make a living fishing and it's a combination of the fishing skills and the guide skills that I had before my New York experience, but really marrying that with the business acumen and those skills that I picked up during New York, you know, that's allowed me to be, you know, an entrepreneur and more than just a guide, which has kind of helped me create, you know, a life and uh, a career, you know, doing what I love to do. Yeah. No, that's a, I've heard that story before. I'm glad you shared that because that was definitely something I wanted to check in with you on. I mean, I think, there's a couple of questions there that um, that come from that, and, and I've talked to a number of guides here, and we've had this conversation before because it's interesting to me. I've guided a little bit as well over over the time, and and you know you hear some guys that are in it, they stick with it for for the their entire career. There's some guys that are in it for a bit and they get out, and uh, and yeah, you jumped in this hedge fund. I mean, what do you think? And when you look back on that, you know, Bill, I've heard the story there, the, the guy that kind of brought you in in this crazy story. What do you think is the biggest thing you take away is something you learned from him just as a kind of a person or, you know, or business or as a person? You know, there were so many little, little things I learned there and, and, and many things that I kind of aspire to be for, from that experience. I mean, Bill Ackman is 
kind of one of the most admirable people that, that I've ever met, you know, in, in many respects. I mean, he's incredibly smart, you know, works incredibly hard. Uh, also, you know, is willing to invest in people just like he was with me. I mean, it would have been much easier for him to go find, uh, you know, some Harvard MBA graduate who already knew what they were doing. But, you know, he, he saw something in me that, that he was attracted to and was willing to invest the time to help to help grow, grow that skill set for me. Um, and, you know, he's also incredibly philanthropic. You know, just with his own financial success, he he does a lot of good in the world. And so when I look back on that experience, you know, I certainly learned a lot of business and finance skills, but probably, you know, the more important and, and human part of that experience was it it also really helped stoke this need. Uh, to kind of give back in the world and to help other people, you know, whether it's, you know, as simple as helping other people in the fishing industry create opportunity or understand, you know, what's going on or, or you know, helping my, you know, friends and guides, you know, negotiate better contracts or mm-hmm. market themselves better or, or doing all these little things. You know, I feel a much bigger need to to be a mentor to to other people. Um, and it also kind of segued into, you know, my favorite thing that I do now, which is this nonprofit that I helped co-found with Al Perkinson, you know, called IndieFly, you know, where we try to use fly fishing as a tool to help indigenous communities in the world. Um, you know, and, and that desire and that passion for that, uh, you know, a big part of that is, is from the, my experience around Bill Ackman and, and watching, you know, all the good that he has been able to create in the world and, and all the joy you can get from doing those things. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's pretty, that's pretty awesome stuff. I mean, it, it hits home with me too. I think that one of the challenges is I, I've heard that from a lot of people I've talked to that have already been, you know, really successful and, you know, you kind of have to give back and that's an important part. And you see that the more you give back, you get twice as much back, you know, to you in the long run. Uh, but you know, it's challenging, especially starting out with maybe you think about, you know, you need money to give, but I mean, how, how do you feel like, do you, do you feel like it's something anybody can do out there? You started this nonprofit. Has it been something that has been a, a challenge for you? Has it taken a lot of money or, or what's your take on it? Yeah, it's everything is a challenge, right? And, and really the things that are hard that you work for are the most rewarding. And my general view on all of it is if you're a participant in the outdoors at large, but fly fishing specifically, you have an obligation to give back. I mean, we, you know, we have a real need right now in these battles for public land and conservation and habitat preservation. And it's a part of being an angler. And if you're going to participate and benefit from the resource, I feel very strongly that you have an obligation to give back. And, and there's luckily meant lots of ways to do that. Right. It doesn't have to be a financial drain. Man, you can also, you know, donate time and you can, you know, help support companies that do good things. There's lots of examples of companies in the space that help fight the good fight. And you can choose to spend your angling dollars wisely on that front. And, you know, you can locally, regionally, nationally, wherever, you know, support some of these incredible organizations that do good work, you know, by, you know, donating a little bit of time, donating a little bit of money. Um, and, and helping supporting them as guides, man, you can, you know, donate trips for for them to help raise money in other ways. And uh, I do think that they go very much hand in hand uh, as as an angler and a participant. That there is also an obligation. Yep, 
Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I think that's a great point that the, yeah, it's not all, you don't have to have money to help out. And I mean, uh, Trout Unlimited is we've, that's come up a lot on this show and that's a big organization that is, you know, I mean, you could join that for free and get involved and, and do lots of things, but no, that's a, that's great. I love hearing the, the story on it. It was uh, IndieFly. IndieFly, absolutely. Yeah. So now, and maybe you could explain a little bit further on exactly. So you, so that program basically helps um, small communities um, basically make money and then support the the environment in their local area. Yeah, you know the basic premise is kind of all over the world there are indigenous populations that have an incredible asset in this land that they own. And, you know, as the world encroaches, you know, often what happens is that land gets exploited, you know, uh, whether it's, you know, just selling access for someone else or selling the rights, whether it's an extractive industry like mining or timber, you know, or, or, or just neglect, um, you know, there, there is still, big tracts of the, of the world that are owned by indigenous communities. And if you can show them how they can benefit economically, you know, the basic idea is if they are getting money out of this incredible asset that they have, and particularly through fly fishing, which is so low impact, you know, you're catching fish and letting them go. Mm-hmm. We can teach them the skills to do the hospitality, to do the guiding and to do all these things. And when they start to benefit and directly, right, then, you know, IndieFly is a nonprofit. The community owns the business. You know, we don't just create jobs. You know, we create an enterprise mm-hmm. that the whole community benefits from. And so as that happens, you get local buy-in. And as the communities see the economic benefit, they become conservationists, right? Mm-hmm. You know, conservation is a luxury. You can preach to people all the time that they shouldn't do these things, but fundamentally people need to eat and they need yep. to support their families. And so by creating the economic upside where they are now in a better position and their families are in a better position, they have the luxury to become conservationists and they see the benefit. And the more ardent they are in protecting that resource, the more money they potentially earn. And we've watched it be incredibly successful in Guyana and French Polynesia, you know, as these communities benefit, you know, they, they, they become advocates and they become conservationists. They're, they're even more extreme than we would have wished because they, they really benefit the most. Are they, do you see that? I mean, I'm not sure how long you've been doing this, but do you start to see that they're spreading spreading it to local communities adjacent and that sort of thing that it's going to start. Do you, do you see that as like kind of this grassroots movement or is it something where we kind of have to have a, a hand or, you know, you have to have a hand as it grows? No, I think, you know, we're, we're certainly early in the game, but you know, our first project was in Guyana and absolutely you're watching surrounding villages, watch the success of Rewa and want to implement it. And, uh, you know, they, you, you know, and, and it, and it all starts mm. with, with good conservation. And so I think, yeah, it sets an incredible standard and an incredible that lead by an, by an example that other communities will pick up. And, you know, as those stories get told, I think that it does have global reach. And, you know, the, the more footprints of that that are around the world, the easier it will be to spread that message and help create opportunities for people. Mm. No, that's cool. And and your background as far as uh, you didn't have a degree or uh, education really in business before you jumped into the hedge fund stuff? No, no. I, uh, I have a philosophy degree uh, and a history degree. I, my intent when I was an undergrad was to go be an attorney. Yeah. And uh, uh, this, this is a much better life. So. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great story because I think it, we've talked a little bit about this, you know, some of these ideas. I mean, I have a few, I know a few people that listen to the show that are, you know, they're people that uh, want to be guides or they want to get into, you know, the industry um, sort of thing. And they're just struggling to kind of jump off and, and go for it. And, and um, I guess one question would be maybe if you had a, um, a tip or some, something to help them maybe, you know, see what you've been down. I know now you, you're an, a lodge owner, so you've kind of taken another step out of the guiding in that, that sense. But yeah, maybe you could talk a little bit about that, like what your take is on it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, it, this is a question that I, I, I seriously, I feel it so often just on in Instagram of people, <laughs> Hey, yep. you know, I, I want to break in. How, what totally. do I do? Uh, that, uh, that first job in the fly fishing space is the hardest, you know, it's hard to get that, that, that break. Mm. And, um, you know, there are really kind of two natural places to break in. And one is, you know, just going to work for a shop, you know, there's a lot to be learned, you know, being just in the shop and surrounded by people, you know, the guiding is kind of the, the sexier, cooler position. And, and that's great. And, um, and certainly I think everybody who wants to make a living in this space should spend some time guiding because the skills you learn doing that are, are so important of just understanding the client and the customer and the resource and the challenges and, and benefits and, and all of that. Uh, there are a couple good guide schools that are out there, which historically is what I've always done hmm. to, to kind of help people break in and, uh, honestly, I've fielded so many of these that Yako Lucas and I yeah. are launching our own guide school. Oh, cool. Which we, we, <laughs> this is actually the first time I've told anyone That's publicly. Awesome. So, um, this May we will do our first one and we are doing it a little different than, than other guide schools and that both of us has done a lot of international guiding. We still host trips and do a little bit of guiding here and there, but it's more of an industry breakout of just helping educate people of, you know, the, how you can create value and how you can help create opportunity and the skills that we we find and look for, uh, you know, I mean, at this stage, you know, I mean, I've trained and I have so many guides working for me, you know, I have a very defined format of, of what I look for and what, what I try to teach people in, in the skills that I think matter. Mm-hmm. No, that's cool. Yeah. That's good to hear you're jumping in. I mean, when you get into these new, uh, you know, lines of kind of revenue streams, how do you decide what to go into and what not to? It sounds like you kind of just listen to people talking and telling you there was a need there. Is there anything else you look at? Because, it, and, and are you, do you plan on continuing to like d- diversify and add more of these things? Cause it seems like, again, there, there's no money to ma- be made in fly fishing. It's uh, something that comes up quite a bit on this show. And when I'm talking to people that are in it. Yeah, you know, I think that that's partially true, right? It's a difficult place to – it's not a difficult place to make a living, right? It's it's an extremely difficult place to generate wealth, right? But there's a whole lot of people that have created very comfortable lives uh, fly fishing. And, you know, you could do that just guiding, right? I mean, some of the happiest, most content people I know and some of the biggest badasses I know are people that master a little local area and they are just so good because they spend every day and they're so intimate with their place and they're great guys. You know what? They make a great living and then they have a big part of the year off and they, they really do well with that. Um, 
you know, this isn't a space I think where you can expect to go get rich doing anything, right? And I just yep. don't think that exists. And the the way I view it is uh, is the hub and spoke model, right? So I, th- I think of myself as the hub of this wheel that I do all these little things that that all help make the wheel go round. You know, I have the lodges, I guide, I host trips. Uh, you know, I have, you know, you know, I represent some companies. I write, you know, I do a little filming, and all of that all of those little spokes help make the wheel go round and they all actually feed each other too. The more I do with one thing, the other things benefit as well. And I'm not opposed to, you know, adding more spokes to my wheel, but I'm not really actively looking for them. Uh, the guide school idea with Yako was really just a product of he and I, you know, talking about the frustration of communicating to people all the time about wanting to break in and not having something that we really thought was the right thing to send them to. And, and, and just us sitting around like, you know, man, we can create something that will add a lot of value uh, to the industry, to the, all these people who are looking for it and and be very open about it. And, yeah, I mean, I guess ultimately it'll be a business and we hope we can make the financial side work. But it's also another way to kind of help, you know, those those other people break in and and, and benefit in the ways that we have from this community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's well said. Cool. So your your lodge, uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about that, what you have going on over there. And that's specifically, is that focused on bonefish? Yeah. So I'm a partner in two fishing lodges over in the Bahamas. So I, I have Bears Lodge, B-A-I-R-S, Bears Lodge in South Andros. Uh, it's been there for a really long time. It's actually where I caught my very first bonefish. And it's a killer spot, uh, you know, kind of very remote and primitive island. We get all of our supplies come on a boat once a week, all of our food and all of our fuel and everything. And it's a really just kind of step back in time. Nice. Great experience, very healthy resource, great guides, killer spot. Uh, then I have Abaco Lodge, which is the one when I left New York that I physically went and built. And, uh, and, and it's also just, it's a great, place it has a great atmosphere it has a great vibe uh it, the, the fishery in abaco is a little more diverse in that we we not only have bonefish but we have some permit and tarpon around mm-hmm. we've had a particularly great permit fishery this fall uh, and um and you know they're both a, a really big part of my life i spent you know several years living in the bahamas building and running running the program there. You know, I met my wife there. She's a, she's a local Bahamian from Abaco. And, uh, so yeah, I have kind of deep roots now over in the Bahamas and, and love it. That's cool. That's cool. Yeah. So, so, uh, yeah, maybe I, for somebody who's never been to the Bahamas and, you know, met some of the, the local people and stuff like that in the area, can you explain maybe shortly what, what it's, what it's like and how it might may, maybe is different from North Carolina or any, anywhere else kind of in the lower 48? Yeah, the Bahamas are, are really quite remarkable because they're so close to the United States and so easy to get to uh, that really the more I travel in the world, the more I appreciate how incredible the Bahamas are. You know, it's uh, it's a it's a really tiny country in numbers of people and probably actual square mileage of, of land. But there are tons of islands. I say there's over 700 islands in the Bahamas scattered over a huge geographical area. And when you look at the population of the Bahamas, you know, which is about 400,000 people, you know, about 320,000 live in Nassau, which is the capital. And uh, as an angler, you would never, ever want to go to Nassau yeah. for the most part. And they do have a few bonefish. I mean, you can get out for a day if you're stuck there. Hmm. But when you get out to what they call the out islands of the Bahamas, you know, where there are, are not 
a heavy population, you have incredible fishing really throughout the Bahamas. And it's, it's really a, just a great place to go. And then there's lots of lodges, everything from a high end, more expensive place like my own to, you know, very, very rustic, you know, basic operations that, that are a bargain. It's also a great place to go and just bum around and rent a car mm-hmm. and, and kind of find some weightable flats. Um, it, it really, it, it has everything. And it also is a place where whether it's a beginning angler or an expert, you can find something to challenge you and, and derive pleasure from. Oh, that's cool. I love how you, you mentioned the bum around. That was something I, I wanted to dig into a little bit. I, you know, I know if people have, uh, you know, plenty of extra money to, to hit up and go to your lodge or any of the places over there, that that's an option. If, if somebody wanted to, um, and if, if we're talking bonefish here, maybe you can uh, explain a little bit, like if somebody wanted to try to do a DIY bonefish trip, uh, in, in that area, what, what that might be like and maybe what they do to, to kind of get into it. Yeah. You know, anybody has been paying attention to, to just all the, the hoopla the last couple of years, there is a little bit of attitude now that the Bahamas is not welcoming to, you know, the do it yourself anglers. And I, I really don't think that's true in most places, um, throughout the Bahamas, man, there, there are so many great islands to go to, where you know they're very conducive to getting out on foot and and honestly, man, I own a business in Abaco. I mean, we're we're we we make a living having people pay us to go fishing, but but Abaco is a great island to go do some DIY. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of really accessible flats, and it's it's a great spot to go and bring the family and hang out and, and get a car and go explore. Mm-hmm. And if you're willing to get on Google Earth and look and 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 struggle a little bit, you know that there's opportunity for greatness. I mean, you can go out there and stumble into world-class fishing just with a little bit of luck. I mean, that's one of the things about the Bahamian fishery is it really is kind of so healthy that with no knowledge or anything, you can go out there and get a little bit lucky. And if you're willing to spend a little bit of money on a guide, you know, they're just going to increase that learning curve and get you in the right place at the right time. Exactly. Yeah. So you could, go down there and just kind of yeah, do it yourself or grab a guide, or I guess there's different levels of the ways you can do it, but you can, and you actually could probably find a boat or do it from foot. Is it either way? And, and, and size, and there's plenty of fish. It sounds like around, is it, I guess, depending where you go. Yeah. Out, yeah. The boat access is a little bit contentious at the moment for one and two. I don't know of anywhere in the Bahamas that would rent you an appropriate bonefish skin oh, gotcha. to kind of get to where you want to be. Yep. So really I think, Almost anywhere in the world, if you're looking for a saltwater trip that you're going to do it on your own, you're almost going to limit yourself to, to being on foot or maybe a paddleboard. Yeah, paddleboard, uh, sure. You know, you know the, the skill set required to run a skiff and pull a skiff effectively, I mean, unless, unless that's something you've been doing, yep. I mean, even if it was available, it wouldn't do you any good. Gotcha, gotcha. No, the paddleboard, though, that's a great – I've seen uh, – heard, you know, guys are out there, they travel, they don't leave home without their paddleboards and stuff. But uh, is that – have you ever seen uh, – done much of that or – Oh, yeah. I yeah. see more and more of them. And these inflatable paddleboards, mm-hmm. you know, that you can kind of pack up and throw in a – you know, kind of folds into a backpack. Man, I see more and more of those in my travels everywhere. And I think it's an incredibly – kind of effective, fun way to, to kind of cover a little bit more water. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Well, so yeah, that, that, that's awesome because it gives a little bit of uh, some options for some people if they want to do a little bit of, bit of work to get into it. Maybe we could talk a little about, you know, a little more about bone fishing just for, you know, again, somebody who maybe is new to it and we could talk a little bit about 
maybe you can go through, you know, kind of how you catch them, what it's like when you're out there, that whole process just kind of shortly, you know, run through for somebody new to it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, for, for me, bonefish are almost kind of the perfect pinnacle of fly fishing. And it, it's kind of that nice blend of hunting and fishing because you don't blind cast for bonefish, or at least I don't. And, and really nowhere in the Bahamas would you be doing that, but you're, you're on the hunt, right? You're trying to find these fish. And so you're looking for them and it's not so you make visual contact that you engage. And so you see this fish and, uh, you know, we're often fishing to singles or doubles or small groups of fish. We don't have these big, massive schools of fish in the Bahamas like you do in Mexico and Belize. So you have a very, very acquired target, right? That one fish that you're fishing to. And you have to deliver that cast. And uh, at the same time, it's a very honest fish is what I tell people. If you do what you're supposed to do as an angler, the fish usually cooperates and then you hook into a fish that has the ability to swim 45 miles an hour. So you might hook a bonefish that's the size of your biggest trout and, and he screams off 150 yards backing and it's an incredible feeling as it all comes together. And, uh, kind of the quick bonefish one-on-one that I give people is the biggest difference, particularly if this is going to be your leap from trout fishing or freshwater fishing into saltwater is, it's not that you have to cast so much further. It's that it all happens quickly. Mm. Uh, you know, trout fishing, you have time to get ready and you, you know, yeah. there's all this, you know, time, right. Just to do whatever, to watch, to observe, you know, when you're, when you're bone fishing, you're looking. And then when you see that fish, you have to react. And the real key to success is being able to go from zero to 60 really fast. Yep. And so the, the thing that people could do the most to prepare for a bone fishing trip is not go out there and just cast, but go out there and cast starting from having the fly in your hand to the longest cast you can in the fewest false casts. And ideally, mm-hmm. you know, you're, you're going to catch more fish as you can lay out more lines. So, you know, but if you can cast effectively, you know, at 30 or 40 feet, okay. you're going to catch plenty and plenty of bone fish. Gotcha. And if you can cast 60 feet, you're going to catch even more. But the real skill to work on is going from having the fly in your hand to laying out that 40 foot cast, yeah. ideally with just two false casts. That's- and when you can start to do that, man, then, then you're really in the game. And the next thing that I get people to work on is just kind of good habits, which means when you deliver that cast, the first thing that happens is the rod tip goes down to the water line under the index finger. The strip that I really prefer everywhere in the world for bonefish is a long, smooth strip. I like to tell people to put it in their pocket. Hmm. Your hands are out in front of you and I want you to reach out and strip all, you know, a good two, two and a half feet and strip that fly all the way to your pocket. Just that nice, smooth strip. And then you're going to really kind of from there, uh, react to what the fish is doing. Mm-hmm. And that long strip does a few things because even a great caster is going to have slack in the line as it doesn't lay out perfectly straight. So the first thing you're doing is just taking out the slack and you want that fly to move. Uh, bonefish see movement incredibly well. They don't necessarily see detail that well. So you want that fly to move and then you can gauge by how that fish perks up or whether they want to chase it down or sometimes with the bigger fish in particular, I find that less movement is better. Uh, but all that is going to be a, be a one-off. Hmm. Oh, that's great. Yeah. That really puts in perspective. And so if you're on a, uh, if you're on a boat kind of with the guide, he's going to be directing you kind of two o'clock or whatever, kind of that sort of thing. If, and if you're doing the off the beach, and you're kind of spying. I mean, how are you reading water? Either way, in either case, how, how do you kind of read the water? Are you just sitting out there just yeah, looking? Yeah, sure. Yeah. 
you know, so the new variable for most people in salt water is tide. And, uh, and really, I think to make it even more, more simple for people, it's really the movement of water. So in a river, the river moves and the river carries the food. And in the ocean, the water moves and it also carries the food. So you want to find places where that water's moving. I find the stronger the current, you know, and that could be wind driven or tidal driven or just kind of a geographical barrier where the things get funneled that pushes food and that will draw fish and it will draw fish at certain times of the day. Right. And so you want to kind of find these places where the water is going to be moving the food and the fish are going to come in there to eat the food and, you know, bonefish, they, their safety net, you know, how they escape predators is by being able to go into really shallow water and to swim mm. really fast. And so you want to find somewhere where they can get up there, get skinny, keep away from the sharks and feed comfortably, yeah. but at the same time have somewhere where they could dart out into deeper water and get away, mm. you know, if need be. And, you know, when you can find those things and then the water's moving and there's food there, you know, the fish will be there. And uh, the problem for most people is you might be in the right spot, everything's perfect, and you see nothing. But and you and you move on. But had you waited just 15 minutes or an hour as that tide gets optimal, mm. you know, the fish come in there you know, and it becomes very cyclical. And so as you start to figure out those movements, it's very predictable. But as you're first learning, you can get really frustrated. And uh, so I would tell people just to fish slower. You know, yeah. when you find something that looks really good, you know, sit down man, take a break, have a beer. Hmm. Right. Just keep your yeah. eyes because if, if things look good. You probably are it's somewhere good. You just yeah. might be there at the wrong time. Gotcha. And by looking good, that might be like we're talking about just a really a shallow flat. Um, and maybe it's just time. Yeah. If you got to wait for that tide to come in and change it up and then kind of go from there. That, no, that's a great, great tip. Are there any other things to be looking for other than kind of that shot? And what, and what is the depth of water we're talking about? You know, when you're on foot, you, you generally want to be knee deep or less, right? As it gets deeper than that, your visibility gets really diminished and, and, and you can find bonefish in surprisingly skinny water. I mean, I've found fish with their whole back and tail, you know, are out of the water as they're up there feeding, particularly if the tide is pushing in, right? The water is going to come in and there's no risk of them getting trapped. They're willing to take bigger risk. Now, if, if the tide were to be receding, you know, they're not going to want to be up there with their whole back exposed because then they risk getting stuck, right? So you have mm -hmm. to kind of keep all that in mind. So, you know, as the tide goes into the mangroves, the fish will go into the mangroves with it and feed. And as the tide comes out, they're going to be coming out of those mangroves. So, that transition point, you know, is kind of where a good place to stage up and you're going to have a longer time to fish as the tide's falling in that case as those fish are coming out of it slowly and comfortably versus, you know, when it's pushed in, you know, they're going to be racing past you to get back in there, you know, but as they're coming out, it'll, it'll all happen more slowly. Gotcha. Gotcha. And what are you in there? What, what are they chasing? What are they eating? And maybe talk about a little bit about the flies that you're using. Yeah. Uh, you know, bonefish are you know, the good news is you're not like trying to crack the code of the hatch. You know, it's not like they're only going to eat a, you know, size 22 blue wing emerger or something. Uh, you know, if you go down with a, a little bit of a selection of various shrimp and crab patterns, you're going to be able to catch bonefish really anywhere in the world. Uh, I am really partial to throwing tan and, uh, you know, and, and the general rule of thumb with most saltwater fishing is when you're in doubt, you just want to match the bottom. So if you're fishing mm -hmm. over turtle grass or a model bottom, maybe you want an olive. If it's a bright white sand flat, you can throw a white fly, you know, because the prey, you know, those crabs and shrimp, you know, that's how they're going to hide. So they're going to match the bottom and that's what those fish are feeding on. And so really, you know, there's a few, few colors, man. And, and mm -hmm. for me, that those are the big three of, you know, tan, olive, white, 
there are places in the world, Andros is one of them, where pink is incredibly effective. We fish a lot of pink, but not like a fluorescent bright pink, just kind of that, you know, that soft kind of wispy, shrimpy pink. Gotcha. And, uh, you know, what's more important for me is the weight. And uh, so I often will have the same pattern in multiple weights. So, you know, I'll have small bead chains, medium bead chains, large bead chain, small lead eye, large lead eye, all in the same pattern. And my general rule of thumb is I want to throw the heaviest fly that I can get away with. It's important for the fly to be able to enter the water, you know, as softly as possible because you don't want to spook fish as the fly lands. But, you know, bonefish, their mouth is oriented where they want to trap that food on the bottom and kind of suck it in. Mm. So you want to get your fly to the bottom as much, much as you can. And uh, so, you know, I fish a lot of really small, you know, custom flies with tungsten eyes because it enters the water quietly and sinks really quickly. Mm. No, that's, that's a great tip. And what are, do you have a couple of patterns just so people can check out uh, maybe online? Yeah, absolutely, man. If you gave me one fly to go fish for bonefish anywhere in the world, Hands down, it would be the Pugliese spawning shrimp. I mean, that, that fly is so deadly, and it is the best commercial bone fishing fly out there for me, at least, hands down. Like, yeah. I mean, I would rather take that in all its variations uh, before I even start to mess with anything else. But, uh, you know, really, if I had a handful of flies, I would take that Pugliese spawning shrimp. Shrimp, uh, the Viverka's mantis shrimp, which is just a solid tan, rubber leg, super simple fly, a gotcha. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, something else I really like is uh, Drew Chacon has a really great fly called a coyote ugly, which mm-hmm. is also a shrimp pattern uh, tied with coyote fur, and it moves really well in the water. And then I also like a couple crab patterns, and it could be, you know, just really meant just a simple like EP crab. He has a little micro crab that I like for tailing fish. He's got, you know, just kind of a, a little bigger Merkin style fly. Um, you always want a couple crabs and you also want a couple small, really light things when you have some tailing fish and really, really skating water. Mm, nice. Okay. And I'll leave uh, links to some of those, uh, flies at uh, wetflyswing.com slash, um, we'll have this at Oliver, uh, slash Oliver will be the, the, uh, dome or the URL for this one. And I'll, uh, yeah, I'll see if I can find some videos. I like to let people check out some of that stuff. That's cool. I wanted to get a little more into, um, some of the other, you know, tips and, you know, when you're out there, but before I get there, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about, you know, you have a few brands out there, right? Yeti. I see a lot of stuff with Yeti and some other, are there a number of brands that, that you work with? And can you talk about, um, you know, maybe the inspiration that you find from some of those? I know Yeti, I, I know they do a lot of cool stuff, at least with some of their videos and stuff is when you choose a brand to work with, what goes through your mind? Yeah, you know, at this stage, I've been really, really fortunate in that every company that I work with, as far as I'm concerned, are best in class. Man, I fish G Loomis rods. Man, there's not a better rod for me out there than the NRX. Right? Same thing. I fish Nautilus reels. Man, there's not a better reel out there that's going to handle you know the diverse fishing and the abuse that I put my stuff through as that. Uh, and then, yeah, I also work with companies that I think do incredible good in the world, you know, Costa sunglasses, uh, not only is the product great, but you know, they, they do a ton of great conservation, whether it's this kick plastic movement, uh, you know, they, they also were the ones that helped start and fund Indie fly and continue to, mm-hmm. um, Yeti, you know, not the products best in class, uh, and man, the list of ambassadors they have really yeah. outside of fishing in particular, man, I mean, they're the biggest badasses there <laughs> are. I feel quite privileged to be in that list of people that they, 
they associate with. Um, so, uh, you know, for me, I've turned down tons of opportunities to work yeah. for other people, whether it's, you know, just not a product I believe in, or it's not a company standing up for things that I want. And so I, you know, none of that stuff changes my life. Um, so I, I really, I associate with companies that it's, it's either stuff I truly believe in or people that I really believe in, but there always is this component of, man, this is, I mean, if you only gave me one choice, this is who I want to be with. And, mm-hmm. th- and that's where, where I am. No, it's, that's awesome to hear. Yeah. I wasn't familiar with, uh, well, I obviously know the companies. I just didn't know the history. I know they've sponsored some other cool stuff, including the, uh, the film tour and yeah, they're, they're, they're out there for sure. That's, uh, well, the other company that comes to mind, um, who I recently, I think heard in a podcast is Patagonia and obviously all the stuff they have going on the conservation end. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I don't talk a ton about uh, a ton of conservation here because I'm trying to do a lot more of the, the tips and stuff like that. But yeah, that's, that's cool to hear. Um, what is, you know, thinking about yourself now, you kind of run the lodge and do a lot of different things. Well, what's a typical day, you know, kind of running your, your stuff now, at least with the, the business? Side <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I have a, a pretty, pretty weird life in that, man, they're really two extremes. I spend a crazy amount of time on the road, right? I mean, I travel uh, more than half the year. I mean, I would say that I'm out of the United States more than I'm in it. Um, and that's a mix of being in the Bahamas. Um, but, but more importantly than any of it, it is, um, you know, hosting trips and mm. taking people on adventures and exploring, looking for new things. And, uh, you know, a lot of that is off the grid, you know, so I spend a lot of time on a satellite phone and, you know, uh, you know, a little satellite texting device to stay in touch and, and do that. Uh, I get to spend a lot of time outside. Um, and then I offset that with kind of big office times. I mean, this, this week is one of those mm. where, you know, man, I'm home. I've been on the road kind of the last five weeks and I'm home this week and I'll be on the road for another two, but, you know, I'll put in, you know, 12 hour days sitting here on the phone and cranking through emails yeah. and doing, you know, the business side of, of work as well. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I still kind of wrestle with the two extremes. You know, I certainly prefer my time outside, but you know, that desk time is, is also pretty critical. And so I have to do, do plenty of that too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, what do you think is your, kind of the worst thing and the best thing about, uh, traveling for you. Oh man, there's no doubt that, I mean, backing up from that, man, the, the best and worst part of my entire life is the traveling, right? Man, I love the travel. I love the adventure and I hate the traveling and <laughs> I hate the getting ready. I hate the airports. Oh, really? I, hate, I hate all of that. Yeah. And, uh, it's, it's really a, a very much a love hate. Huh. Uh, so you love the, so you love going to the places. You just don't love the whole process of getting there. Yeah. I mean, I mean, anybody who spent time in an airport lately, I mean, it's not a fun experience. So, um, <laughs> yeah, there, there's really not much fun of, of you know, getting up for a 5 a.m. flight to go deal with TSA and all of that to go get crammed in a tiny metal tube to get flown around the world. I mean, you know, there, there is no real fun in that. It's, you know, it's the suffer for, for the adventure on the other end. Gotcha. And do you have a, I mean, I've seen some stuff out there with, it looks like some crazy stuff that's got on. If you had to look, you know, not just bonefish, but all your traveling that you've done, is there a kind of a story that sticks in your mind that was the kind of crazy or maybe <laughs> life endangering that sort of thing? Yeah. You know, I think my whole life is a string of these crazy adventures that, that come together. Um, and I, you know, I've had, you know, lots of things go wrong and, uh, and, you know, lots of things go right. And I think for me, the big takeaway from all of it is more and more, you know, it is 
the adventure and the people and the culture and that experience that drives me. I mean, the fishing is still very much a real passion. And then I love to fish more than anything in the world. And it's the thread that kind of ties my whole life together. But as I go off and look for new things, uh, you know, it's not just the fishing that gets me there or, or the reason to go. And, um, you know, so like as a recent example, I, I wanted to go spend some time in the mid East. I think that there's mm. going to be a growing opportunity there as a saltwater angler. Um, I think there's still some exploring to do, you know, it's hard to find places to explore in the world. And, uh, so, uh, I was, I had a, several countries I was stopping in, but one of them was Oman and, uh, I got to Oman and, you know, we're camping out on the beach and got this little shitty tent, 12 foot aluminum boat and a 25 horsepower, you know, pole start engine. And, you know, we're pushing it, you know, 150 yards over the sand and, you know, push it over the sand in to access this water. Cause there's this great rocky structure and wanted to be able to cast back towards it. And like literally we're in the middle of nowhere. We've driven a couple hours and we're camping on the beach and middle of nowhere and in this boat and then i look out and here comes this panga with six men in traditional muslim dress wearing ski masks and it's like man it's it's like all of a sudden shit just got real and trying to get the engine started of course it won't start and the, the boat pulls up and it's like pure panic mode and uh you know, it turns out that it's just commercial fishermen huh. and they were just worried about our safety, right? They saw all these people, you know, they saw a bunch of white guys standing out in this little tiny boat in the middle of nowhere. They're like, what are you guys doing, man? This is not safe. And, you know, it was an incredible wow. moment for a couple things. One, it reinforces something that I already know, which is that generally people in the world are good. And uh, it also just kind of reminded me of this inherent bias that, that you have, you know, of, you know, here was a situation where I'm in a part of the world that we think of as very unwelcoming, and the, it was the exact opposite. Mm. And the people were incredibly kind and incredibly open. And, and here we are, of guys going out of their way to make sure that we were safe, and and we were we were concerned for all the wrong reasons. Gotcha. Yeah, that is that is a uh, pretty interesting story. And I, I think of kind of Mexico because it's probably the same thing where people are, are kind of freaking out about Mexico and saying, you know, nobody's, you know, don't go down there because they're worried of all the, the kind of the mafia stuff. I mean, have you spent some time down in Mexico and do you? Oh spend, yeah, it's on. Yeah. You, I mean, I'll, I'll be going in a couple of weeks. Actually. Cool. Cool. And do you, do you see the same thing that that's just pretty much, there's these hot spots of kind of craziness, but pretty much overall, it's a pretty safe place. Yeah, I think that absolutely Mexico and really most parts of the world, right? You can go look for trouble anywhere. If you just read, you know, the crime report for Detroit, Michigan, man, oh, yeah. and extrapolated from that that the entire United States yep. was not safe, right? That's a lot of what's That's happening that. in Mexico. There are there are places there that are really dangerous and you don't want to go. And for the most part, man, you can go where the fishing's great and you can go to Ascension Bay and these places and you're going to have an incredible experience. I mean, the fishery is top notch. The guides are great. And, um, you know, it's a wonderful place to go and, and fish. And, you know, at the same time, and it's not somewhere you want to go and look for trouble. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great point. So just thinking again, you mentioned a story. Uh, it was, you kind of mentioned that there was a turning point there back when you, I think, connected with Bill. Are there any other situations in your life that were kind of influence you to, to get to where you are now? Or is it, was that kind of the big, the big point in your life? You know, I think kind of connecting that back to that, that idea of people wanting to break into the industry. Uh, the things that really mattered are, are usually the most challenging. 
right? Um, I think people often look at where, where, where others are in the world and, you, you know, they don't recognize the amount of effort it took to get there. And if I laid out my whole career path, man, there were so many opportunities to quit or to walk away or to go do something else. And, you know, it was a real passion for me to go and do what I'm doing now and chasing things that I, that, that I loved and, you know, seeing opportunity that others didn't necessarily see. And it's everything from, you know, my first job in Argentina, you know, I, I didn't know what I was signing up for. You know, I, I mean, I got on a plane and flew down to Tierra del Fuego and my parents were like, is it going to be safe? Are these people going to pay you? Or, you know, you don't get paid till you're going to be down there for six months. You don't get paid till you leave. And, you know, th- there's an inherent amount of trust. And, and a, with that comes a little bit of a risk and reward. You know, when I graduated college, I went and hitchhiked through Chile for a winter with no money, man. I had no money at all. I mean, I slept on the side of the road in a tent and ate rice and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, but I mean, I did it because I wanted the experience and, um, and, and that compounds in a lot of different ways, man. You know, I would, you know, guide all summer. And then in between that season in Jackson Hole in Argentina, you know, I would travel for, you know, a good six weeks. You know, we went to Venezuela, me and some buddies and, you know, rented a tiny little crappy house out in Los Rogas and fished every day, right? you know, with, no, with yeah. no money. And so you start to do all these experiences and they compound over time and you, you build off of that. And, and for me, that's how I've been able to, to make a, make a career. And I think a lot of people, you know, want the end result without putting in the yeah. time. And uh, so, you know, I also want to encourage those younger guys just to get out there, right? You don't have to go do crazy stuff, right? Nope. You don't have to go to the Seychelles where it's $10,000 a week, right? There's adventure to be had at home. And, you know, every day that you go and spend on the water is an experience that you get filed away in this library. And as your library gets filled with more and more experiences, you become better and better, and your ability to pull from those gets better and better. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that, that for me is really what created a lot of opportunity. Yeah. It's about the, uh, it's about the journey, not the, uh, the destination, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's kind of very cliche, but yeah. you know, that, that it really is, is a lot of truth in that. Yeah. And, uh, so I was just thinking, you know, now that you have, I think you have at least one kid and, uh, you know, you've done all, all these amazing adventures that does as you look out now and i think back to again that that point with bill where i think he hired you uh to do this hedge fund i think you went to new york not even knowing what uh you know you were going to get paid um with all that said it seems like you've kind of just been going i mean not necessarily shooting from the hip from the whole time but doing some stuff that's kind of out there how does it change are you still doing that now that you kind of have a family or do you think about things differently or you know what's your next adventure here what's the next thing that's going to surprise people yeah 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 i I don't know that i'm looking to surprise people but um for sure you know i did i just had my first son and um man it's you know it's also very cliche but it's so much better than i ever would have expected and it is you know it does very much change your life for the better and and so now uh you know i'm at a stage where it's a little bit of restructuring of i do have this insatiable desire to get out in the world and go go look for things and those crazy adventures that i really really get the most out of personally are harder to come by and they're crazier. Uh, and I still have a long list of, of those adventures that I'm looking for. And I, I don't, I don't expect that to ever go away, but, 
uh, at the same time, you know, now I do also want to spend a lot more time at home, right? I mean, uh, especially at this age. I mean, he, you know, he'll be one here in a couple months and, you know, he changes so fast. So every week that I'm gone, I feel like I'm missing out. And yep. so there is this new effort to, to balance these two extremes of my life. And part of that is, you know, I leave for the Bahamas on Monday. I'm just taking him with me. Right. And so, cool. um, you know, when, when, where I can, uh, we'll just integrate the two lives together and I still will go do these things that I do. Man, it's, it's as much of my identity as anything anymore. Um, uh, but I also am very much carving out some of the lower value stuff. And, uh, I mean, I've always been somebody to say yes to things, you know, as things come up, you know, I want, you know, I'm a people pleaser. I like to make people happy and do things. And, uh, more and more, man, my default answer to things are no. And, uh, so, and then it needs to fall into a couple categories. It either needs to be, you know, lucrative, like a way to, you know, I still, I'm a working man. So like when I can make a living, I need to make a living, uh, or it needs to be something that I really want to do, you know? Um, and I've been very fortunate to have fish many, many places and get to fish, uh, you know, most places that I desire, say, you know, you know, those kind of low margin travel trips that, you know, used to be really exciting. You know, I'm not doing many of those anymore, but you know, when I get opportunities to go do something crazy, like go to Australia for a month, which I just mm-hmm. signed up for, mm-hmm. I'm in, right. I'm in. <laughs> so, cool. uh, you know, and just, yeah, uh, just time's precious. So trying to allocate it a, a little, a little with a little more thought. Gotcha. Well, I want to get back into uh, a few more of the tips and things talking about bonefish, but, um, before I get there, just want to check, you know, when you talk, think about yourself, you know, kind of what you've been doing. I mean, when you think about your superpower, <laughs> you know, what is it, uh, you know, if you had to say one thing that, that is your, your big thing that, uh, kind of separates you from, you know, a lot of the other people that maybe haven't gotten to where you are or, or maybe want to get to where you are. What, what what's that thing that kind of gives you that, uh, that next level above. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I tell people often that, uh, you know, I'm f- filled with self doubt and, uh, I think a lot of the attention that I get is probably undeserved. I mean, I know many, many guides who are much, much better than I am. And I know lots of casters who are much better casters and fly tires who are much better and businessmen who are much better Right. I mean, there is nothing where I think that that I am the standout all star and I have everybody beat Mm -hmm. uh, by any stretch. Right. I I mean, uh, I really I know so many great people in this industry that probably don't get the attention that they deserve. Um, And I think one of the things that has happened for me is that I've had a very eclectic life and a lot of that has been by taking really calculated but but risky things right and and going to new york i mean you mentioned mm-hmm. yeah i mean i i took this job in new york not really knowing this individual right i mean I'd, I'd guided him for one week right you know didn't know anything about going to new york didn't know anything about finance i took the job without negotiating a salary right yeah. and you you know it's in hindsight you're like yeah of course you would go do that what a cool experience but at the time you know it was really, it didn't make that much sense. And a lot of people thought I was crazy because I had this dream job and I was guiding Jackson Hole. I was guiding Argentina, right? That's a pretty, pretty good thing to just walk away from. And uh, internally, I mean, it was a very, very thoughtful process of you're going to go and you're going to have this incredibly different experience. And, uh, you know, the worst case scenario is you learn 
or validate, you know, these thoughts that you have that you don't want to live in a city and you don't want to work in an office and maybe finance is interesting, maybe it's not, you know, but the, the worst case scenario was I didn't go to Argentina for one winter and guide and I go right back to Jackson Hole and jump right back into where I was. And the upside was a lottery ticket, right? I didn't hmm. know what the upside was. Yep. I, mean, I, I mean, I had no clue. I didn't expect to go make a lot of money. I didn't go and make a lot of money, but I did go and get an incredible education and meet a bunch of incredible and lifelong friends that I never expected. And, you know, the downside risk was was pretty minimal. And yeah. um, in general, throughout my life, uh, I mean, I look for those opportunities where you can have a new experience because you never know what's going to come from that, particularly if you can cap the risk, right? If you know that the worst case scenario is not that bad and, and the best case scenario is, is unknowably good, then I, I would encourage people to do those all the time. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and I think for me, what that's kind of cultivated is just a well-rounded kind of diverse experience, right? I mean, uh, you know, I, I've got the fishing chops and I've got the guide skills and I also have the business acumen. And I also have developed an incredible network of, you know, kind of friends and clients and people. And, um, you know, I also really value those relationships and I take, you know, that I consider them sacred, right? Like I, I think the most important thing that people ever give, you know, fishing guides or people, you know, lodge operators or outfitters or anything is their time. And, uh, you know, I, I, as I train guys and teach people, I get them to really think about, it doesn't matter what you're charging for the trip and these guys, you know, the thing that they gave you that matters the most is their time. And when you respect that and do everything you can, given whatever circumstances you, you have to maximize their time, you know, then people will really, really appreciate it. Hmm. No, that's cool. And I, I guess that's your, is that your, uh, your, uh, kid in the background? Yeah, yeah, he's back there screaming. Yeah, nice. he woke up from his nap. That's awesome. That's awesome. No, I have a couple of young ones too. I've uh, they're they're four and six now, so I've, I've been there. It's it's a pretty cool pretty cool spot where you're at. Yeah, um, Huck's just learning he can make noise. So that's cool. You know, he loves it. No, it's all good. I was thinking, I'll, I'll, uh this is because this is kind of a crazy. I'll put it in the show notes. There was this video. It was actually caught. I think it was a. It's kind of it was kind of like an interview. It was. I can't remember who it was, but it was some dignitary being interviewed. But it was a video. It wasn't just audio. And uh, it was so bizarre because the kid came in the background and started kind of playing, and he was obviously in on the video. And and I think it was a I think it was a, a a lady, but she pretty much like pushed the kid out of the door, like out of the room, and almost like kicked him out. It was just this really weird moment. It was like whoa, like bring that kid in and like let's let's hear it. let's take a look at him. And uh, it was just this bizarre thing, but I, I was just, it made me think about that because, you know, we've got the kid in the background. Obviously, you can hear him, but, uh, but, you know, it's life, right? You, you got a kid now, and that's, that's, like you said, you're taking him on your next trip. That's pretty cool. No, I absolutely. I, I mean, I think, I think with kids, you either can decide to kind of live your life around them or you can decide to incorporate them into yours. And, you know, I have a, a, a pretty amazing life and what a great thing to be able to, to share with him. And, you know, he's already got, has a couple stamps in his passport and that's going to continue. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, when you look at, you know, building a life of experiences, he's going to have a major head start over most. Yeah. Yeah. The traveling is a cool thing. And that, I guess that's part of your history too, right? You had a, um, a family life uh, growing up that your dad was in the military. Yeah, he was. My, my father was career military. So, you know, pretty nomadic childhood. 
And uh, yeah, I think that's that's yeah. partly where that wanderlust comes from. Gotcha. Gotcha. No, that's cool. And so I guess getting back into a few of the tips, if you if you kind of, again, go back to maybe the bonefish, do you have a tip or two that you might give somebody just generally about if they're out there and they're, they're going for it to, to help them get into some fish? Yeah, I think the probably, you know, if it's your first time, the hardest thing for people is actually seeing the fish. And, and part of it is I think that people are looking for the wrong thing, right? You, you very, very seldom see the fish itself, right? Or, or certainly not the whole fish. And so, you know, you really, uh, you know, if you've ever lifeguarded or something, it's that peripheral vision and scanning and you're looking for movement and, you know, it's the surface of the water might be a little different. It might actually be the shadow of the fish on the bottom or just a little piece of the fish in the water. Um, but I find that that's where most people struggle is, is looking and finding fish and training their eyes. And, um, and so one thing I say there are cast are free. Right. So, you know, when you're in doubt, it better make a cast and be wrong than to, to have doubt and, and wait a little bit and then blow the opportunity. Right. And then the other thing is when you do actually catch a fish, one of the things that you can do that will help you more than anything is when you release that fish, take a moment and point your rod at it and follow it as far as you can. And that mm-hmm. it's surprisingly useful tool because what you see at five feet and 10 feet is different than what you see at 15 feet. And then that's even different from what you see at 20 feet and 30 feet and 50 feet and 60 feet and a hundred feet. And it starts to help your brain think about the different things you're looking for. And uh, so when when I'm getting people in their first few bonefish, that's an exercise I do over and over again. All right, Hmm. great job. Way to catch it. Now let's let it go. And I want you to physically point your rod and point at that fish and follow it for as far as you can. Hmm. And that will help, you know, teach you, right? I mean, this is all, all a building block and that'll just, it'll make it easier to find those fish when they're coming the other way. Gotcha. And I guess that changes a little bit with uh, cloud cover and things like that. Is there anything to know about that when you have different changing in the kind of environmental conditions? Yeah. You know, I mean, all of those are just various challenges. I mean, very simply, you know, you're going to be able to see better with the sun at your back, right? So you're going to try to put yourself in a position where you can walk with the sun at your back and, uh, you know, when it's, when it's overcast, it's harder. Uh, you know, I try to particularly, uh, look for harder, you know, whiter sand, uh, on really cloudy overcast days because it's, you know, makes it a little easier to find that profile fish. I mean, walking on a model bottom with no sun makes it particularly hard. Um, but you know, there's, there's no magic formula there. You got to have to take what you're given. Gotcha. Cool. Well, uh, I've got a few more here and I think maybe we'll just kind of do a little rapid fire round and, uh, get through these if you got a few more minutes. Yeah, absolutely. Nice. Uh, so the first thing, I guess you, we mentioned some gear and kind of things like that. Is there a, like a piece of go-to gear that you don't leave home without that's maybe doesn't necessarily have to be fly fishing related? Yeah. I mean, you know, for me it's, it's communication. And so, uh, I mean, I take a satellite phone everywhere I go and I think of that as really critical. Um, you know, just, being prepared and, and not counting on someone else. You know, even if I'm going to another lodge or with another guide or, or whatever, I like to be in control of my own destiny. So yeah. I make sure that I have communication all the time. And I do, I take a satellite phone everywhere I go all the time. Gotcha. And how does that work? We've, uh, it's been a while since I've used one of those is the technology. It must be pretty awesome. Now the, could we, could we be doing this call over a satellite phone pretty easy? 
Oh yeah, uh, you certainly can. You know, there's often a little delay. It's it's imperfect technology for sure. Uh, I think the biggest thing that's changed is it's gotten remarkably affordable. Um, so you know, there's a, several different companies. Uh, the one that I use is called Inmersat. It's a British company, but you can buy the phone for 500 bucks. You own the phone, and then for 400 bucks a year, I get oh, wow. 400 minutes. Damn. Right. So. There's no monthly fee. There's nothing, right? So, I mean, That's I've great. had my phone for eight or nine years, right? It's indestructible, and it costs me 400 bucks a year for 400 minutes. I never use them all, yep. and, you know, it's a bargain. Wow. Yeah, I mean, that's the price of going, going to the gym. That's pretty amazing. Huh. So, uh, okay, and then uh, is there another uh, kind of, if you think about a book, a magazine, kind of online resource, something that if somebody wanted to go and learn, learn a, a bit about bonefish uh, that they could kind of find somewhere out there? Yeah, I mean, honestly, man, so much is available now just with a little bit of Google. But, uh, you know, the first place I would go for anything like that is YouTube. And there's a couple incredible instructional videos on on various things. I've shot a few things for Yellow Dog, just done little tips and tricks. You know, we, we did one specifically in the Bahamas with a lot of bone fishing, you know, tutorials, all, you know, very short, very consumable Orvis has a couple great casting videos that Pete Kutzner does. I mean, he's a, he's a great teacher and a great caster and, uh, I'm a very much a visual learner. So, uh, I think you're probably only going to consider only going to find more and more resources available, you know, in, yep. in this video format coming from all kinds of sources. Cool. And what's your, uh, I mean, you've, we, we haven't even gone into all the different species you've, you've hit up, but, um, I mean, what, what's on your bucket list? What, what's next? What, what are you, what are you going for? Yeah, you know, the, the crazy thing is uh, every time I check something off my list, uh, I think my list gets remarkably longer somehow, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and kind of it's a product of, you know, <laughs> you just hear about more and more weird, obscure things. But uh, I mentioned earlier, uh, I'm going to go to Australia here in a few months. That'll be my first trip there. I'm really excited about that. There's so many cool things to do. Uh, you know, we're going to be looking for permit, uh, a fish called a blue bastard, but also <laughs> You know, Bear Bundy and Murray Cod. And, you know, it's just there's so much going on and I've never been to that continent. And, and so very excited to go do that. Um, you know, something else that's been on my list for a long time is going to Papua New Guinea, uh, you know, for years and years and years, uh, I would every time I'd, I'd see Lefty Cray, I, I would ask him, you know, what's the the baddest fish on the planet? And without fail, he always told me the Papua New Guinea black bass. And, <laughs> uh, you know, I gave him, you know, more than a decade to change his answer and he never did. <laughs> and so that one's still very high on my list of, you know, not only a cool fish and adventure from that side, but, you know, that goes back to, you know, kind of the wildness and yeah. uh, culture and all those things that I really value as well. Um, you know, I've done a little bit of fishing in Africa and every time I go, I am incredibly just enchanted with, you know, the, just how wild and raw and diverse and interesting it is. And, uh, there's a lot more fishing over on that continent that I'd like to do. And, uh, I've been fishing in Tanzania and Lesotho and Sudan, all with the Tourette fishing crowd out of South Africa. And those guys, man, they, they push really hard to find some new places to go explore. And they've got a new thing uh, mm -hmm. on the Kalahari as well as in Cameroon. And both of those are on my list. Nice. Nice. That's definitely a nice, <laughs> I think you could fill the rest of your life with, do uh, you think there'll be some more, some more species that are going to pop out as you go? Uh, yeah, I think, you know, Cameroon, they have Nile perch. I've never caught that. Um, 
uh, you know, there there are certainly lots of species that I haven't caught. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. You know, I don't have anything that's really kind of floating around that's like not not a known entity. Like, you know, uh, that thing in Guyana, uh, you know, we really uh, kind of brought Arapaima to the co- common knowledge of, of fly fishermen, which didn't really exist before that. Yeah. I'm not sure how many opportunities like that exist in the world. Um, but uh, I do think that there are certainly some new fisheries and places where there's still opportunity to kind of go be, you know, somewhat of an explorer and, and kind of make it more accessible, you know, without, without being too risky or too crazy, you know, the world's changing. Like, uh, I mean, for example, you know, the rumor is Iran has some really good fishing and oh, you know, really? maybe, maybe there'll be a time in our lives where yeah. it's safe enough to go over there and explore a little bit. Yeah. Nice. Cool. Well, you mentioned lefty. Just quickly, I want to, uh, touch on uh, kind of mentors. Is he? Have uh, you had some mentors you want to mention throughout your life that have helped? Oh you? yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, man, you never get to where you are on your own. And uh, man, I've had a lot of people that have been incredibly influential in my life. I mean, Bill Ackman, without a doubt, has been you know one of the greatest mentors I could ever had. Uh, you know, Al Perkinson. Uh, he he just took a job with hook fishing, but you know, he was at Costa. He's mm-hmm. been a really great mentor and he, he and I are the ones who co-founded Indie fly together. Oh, okay. Uh, you know, flip palette has been, you know, just an incredible mentor, you, you know, not only, uh, just because it, it was, you know, an angler I looked up to as a kid, you know, watching, watching him on television. Um, you know, but he, he has an incredible perspective on, on life and, and what it means to, to be outside. And, you know, he sets a great example of kind of like, you know, who I want to be when I grow up. Yeah. Um, but, but that's, that, those are that's three cool. that have, have been incredibly, incredibly strong in my life. Nice. Nice. All right. Well, I will uh, let you get out of here. I just want to check in maybe in the next six to 12 months. If you have uh, something you want to let people know coming up here, we can look for from you. Anything yeah. Let's we'll see here. You know, uh, I, I, I just finished filming a Yeti Presents film, uh, which no one has seen yet, uh, which will come out. But Yeti uh, is doing one of their, you know, they do an incredible job with these little films. And then they're doing a little profile piece on me. And that'll be out here oh, nice. you know, in, the, in the next little bit. Uh-huh. Right on. All right. And if people want to find you with questions, they can just head over to OliverWhiteFishing.com. Absolutely, man. You know, website's good. Instagram is also Oliver White Fishing. Uh, that's generally where most people ping me these days as well. Gotcha. Okay, cool. Well, I will let you go and just wanted to thank you for coming on. I think the challenge for me today was uh, focusing a little bit because there's so much, you know, you've done and, you know, maybe eventually if I can, uh, if we have time to get you back on and, and you're doing something new, you want to talk about, that'd be great. But um, other than that, I'll, I'll let it go and just uh, want to thank you again and, and hope to, we'll keep up with you on what you have new going on out there. All right. Excellent. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Thanks a lot. Bye. So there you go. If you want to find all the show notes with all the links we covered, just go to wetflyswing.com slash six nine. And a uh, a quick shout out to the Wetfly Swing Member Society, where you can support the podcast, uh, connect with all the great partner companies we have on board and get a bunch of amazing discounts, bonuses, and more. Head over to wetflyswing.com slash members. That's M-E-M-B-E-R-S to find out how to get started today. Thanks again for stopping by to check out the show today. I'm looking forward to catching up with you soon and hope to maybe see you on the river or online. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com. 
And if you found this episode helpful, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes.